you will, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We're in Luke chapter 16, and we're going to complete that chapter uh, today. We're going to begin our reading in verse 19. Again, the Gospel of Luke, uh, verse 19 of chapter 16, and we're going to read all the way uh, down to verse 31. You've probably heard me mention that All human communication, all good and effective human communication, uh, rests on uh, three essential uh, pillars. And certainly uh, this is definitively true of Christian preaching or Christian teaching. The first uh, pillar, the first leg, is that of accuracy. Again, in Christian preaching, there is absolutely no point if you do not accurately understand and then communicate the truth of what God has said, what He means by what He said. We want to be accurate uh, with the handling of the text. And and then we want to be very uh, simple. We want to strive for simplicity. Not simplistic, but to make things as straightforward as we possibly can for the sake of that third leg, namely clarity. In fact, there's a sense where uh, simplicity and clarity uh, go, uh, go together in uh, communication. We don't want to muddy the waters. We don't want to confuse the issue. We do not want to say too much, nor do we want to say uh, too little about the matters at, at hand. And so in the text uh, before us uh, today, our, our, our desire is to, to be accurate as to what Jesus means by what he says, and that what he says is uh, very simple and very straightforward. He's very clear that eternity awaits all men, all people. And there are only two possible destinations. One destination is an eternity in the presence of God, in enjoyment and pleasure with Him. The other is a place of eternal torment. It is known as hell. And that the Word of God is that which God has given us, that which is efficient and effective to prepare men, women, and boys and girls for that eternity. And so we would do well today, again, to hear this from the Word of God. So let's listen to Jesus' words today as we we think about what we remember as the story of the rich man and Lazarus. I call it the tale of two destinations. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime 
received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, They do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Pray with me, if you will. Father, again, we thank you for your truth. Uh, it is that which you have given to us for the good of our souls. I pray, God, that your spirit that inspired uh, these words uh, would so work in and among us that you would be glorified and, again, uh, that we uh, would be edified, uh, that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be glorified in all things. We ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. I had a, a, a unique privilege uh, in the course of, of this week. Uh, one of our, our young ladies asked me if I would assist her, if I would help her in preparing a speech that she would give on Friday. And so I was rather honored that she thought I would know anything about, uh, about speaking. And since high school, I have kind of followed a, a particular format. It, it got me through the dreaded uh, English 101 my freshman year uh, at UNA and really got me all the way through seminary. And it's very simple. In writing, you tell people what you want to say, then you say it, and then you tell them what you said. It's very simple. Very simple. You tell people what you want them to know, then you tell them what you want to know, and then you tell them what you told them so they will know it. And, and so Luke does a masterful job. He opens the book. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write an orderly account. I'm going to tell you all about Jesus. I'm going to interview the eyewitnesses. And I'm going to write it down so you, for, for a year, for your sake, so that it will be preserved and it will be for your good. And then notice how he ends his book. If you go all the way back to chapter uh, 24, uh, we find Jesus saying, again, he's going to tell us what Luke has told them about him because that was his stated purpose. He said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that in everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their eyes to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you're witnesses to this. Now, I think that's pretty cool. Luke says, here's what I'm going to tell you about. Then he tells us all about it, uses all of the supporting arguments that he has at his disposal. And then Jesus comes back and said, Luke told you about me. And so that's good communication. And he does that over and over again with every story. And, and I'm amazed because sometimes we have a, a kind of the tendency to look at, well, here's the Bible and it's the Bible. And so, so what? 
But these writers do an amazing job of weaving together the various threads, the thematic threads of the story of redemption and bringing us in and out of the different ways that Jesus explained uh, the truth of the gospel, the, the work of redemption and moving from context to context to context and to issue and to issue to issue. And so we, we find here that uh, Jesus has been speaking to this crowd, and he told them this parable about a, a, a shrewd uh, manager. And we're told, well, he told them this because they, those Pharisees, they were lovers of money, and, and they were presumptuous uh, to a fault, even uh, destroying the very foundation of what God had given to humanity, namely the family in marriage. And so now Jesus is going to illustrate, but make no mistake about it, He's not trying to hide the truth. He's being very pointed about the, the truth that indeed there is an eternity. There is a reality of a place called hell. There is a reality of a place called heaven. And there's only one way that you must be prepared for that day that you will step from that which is temporary and physical, namely life in this world, into life eternal. And so we begin in, uh, with uh, the opening here in verse 19, the depiction of, of two lifestyles. And what we see here is very much a, a contrast and, and even a conflict among the, the two main characters, a, a, a rich man. Now, you know, in literature, think of the stupid television shows you watch. I know, that, I know you watch them, so don't look at me spiritual. But we love whether it's the lifestyles of the rich and famous or some crime drama where some rich man gets what he deserves in the end, okay? Uh, uh, the, the, the rich have long served as a motif uh, to, to utilize as a background to make a point within a story, okay? And so Jesus, again, wants to make sure that the Pharisees understand because they are wealthy and they love their money that I'm going to talk to you. There was a rich man. And let me describe him for you. He was clothed in purple. He, he dressed for success. He dressed so that people would know that indeed he was a success. History tells us that purple cloth was very expensive, and because of that it became uh, the, the exclusive uh, domain of those of means to wear purple and so he was clothed in an outer garment of purple and you know even to this day purple pretty well stands out I mean somebody shows up in purple somebody's going to say something okay so, I mean it's just going to be noted and, and so he wore this to be noted so everyone would know of his success and not only that but his undergarment and you can hear it this way it was finest Egyptian cotton now, I don't know that it was Egyptian. But in other words, it was a fine uh, linen. So he, he dressed so that people would know. He was obnoxiously self-indulgent. And the way the, the language works here, that it was at the daily fare to be overindulgent with his food and most likely even with his drink. That, that there was a, a, a celebration at each meal because he could because he had 
uh, the means. And, and so we're, we're introduced to him that, that this was the normative way he lived. This wasn't just the weekend party. This was the daily fair at his house where he dressed to the nines and he showed up at his table expecting to be waited on and to receive a feast. And that was his normative lifestyle. And then we're introduced to the second character. We see the rich man who is unnamed and the poor man who is named, whose name is Lazarus. And Lazarus is a poor man. And he's a sick man as well. Whether or not there's a connection between his poverty and his poor health, we're not told. Could be. But he is afflicted with sores. And he is laid outside the gate. There is something in this world that physically separates him from the, the uh, uh, things that the, the rich man has, from the, the goods, the food, the pleasures that this rich man enjoys every day. Namely, there's a fence with a gate on it, and the gate is shut, and he's laid outside that gate, so he does not have access. But he continuously desires and seemingly never receives the benefit even of the table scraps. Now, this is not like what we think of at our houses with a few crumbs on the floor, and maybe your dog comes around and licks up the scraps or whatever. The way this worked in the ancient world is there was actually uh, bread uh, at the table, probably a flat bread, uh, uh, maybe uh, you know, similar to some type of Mexican type, type bread, just kind of a flat tortilla type thing. And it was actually utilized as a napkin. Take a piece of bread, wipe the grease off your hand, throw it on the floor. And that was what was on the floor, something that had some nutritional value that would have been a benefit that anyone that had one shred of mercy, of grace, of concern, of love for his fellow man could have at least went and pitched it over the fence. But the rich man had zero concern for the man who was sick and starving outside his gate with his sores, his oozing, festering sores being licked by the dogs. Now, please do not interpret that as some gentle pastoral, at least he had old Fido there to comfort him. That, that at least he had man's best friend to cuddle with. No, in the biblical world, dogs were mongrels that were unclean, that were a nuisance, and the dog was kind of, uh, constantly, with the abrasiveness of his tongue, raking the, the scab off of those sores and infecting them with the nastiness of their mouth. It was an ongoing, putrid experience and sight. And so we see a, a contrast between the physical realm of the rich man and the poor man. The rich man was well attended. The poor man, poor man was abandoned. The, the rich man was healthy. He was wealthy. He had everything that this world could, could offer. And the poor man had nothing. And so with that setting put in place, with that description of those characters, with that uh, kind of a latent or incipient conflict in our mind, we move to verse 22 and we see the description 
of the two destinies. The, the, the great reversal is about to take place. We're told that the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Now, let me, let me pause here for just a minute. In surveying a number of commentaries this week, you must know that for all of my life, this has been understood to be based in reality. A true story that has in a, not, not the Lazarus of John 11, but a real true Lazarus and a rich man. It seems to me that the majority of the commentators, including our beloved John MacArthur, takes it as a, a parable, okay? I w I'm not going to get into that debate right, right now. It's, it, the, the point uh, is the same. There are elements that do make me think that it is true and real to life. There are elements that make me think it's strictly fictional and it, it's a parable. To be sure, there, there is truth revealed, but let's not press upon every detail and, and develop our entire theology, entire eschatology about what heaven and hell are alike. Uh, I'm, I'm not willing to die that when those who believe die that the angels come and escort them uh, to heaven. That, that, that may be kind of a figurative, illustrative thing. It may be that way. Okay, that's fine. But, but again, let's don't press upon every uh, single detail of the story. The point is to illustrate the great distinction in regards to the destinations of these two individuals and why it is that one went to one place and one went to the other. And how you may avoid the application, how you may avoid winding up in the destination that is apart from God and under His wrath forever. So, we begin, the story opens with the rich man, but in the second scene, we flip it and begin with the poor man. He died, and he's carried by the angels to Abraham's side, or I think maybe some of your translation, uh, Abraham's bosom. That, that, that he went to live in an intimate uh, relationship with the father of those who believe. Okay? That is, he went to heaven. That, 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 that is the point. I'll, I'll say some more about kind of the intermediate state and so forth in just a minute, but for, for right now, he went to the place where anybody who heard the story, at least in this context, context of Judaism, he went to the place of the saints, okay? He went to the place of eternal blessing. He went to the very presence of Abraham there uh, adjacent to him. In, in life, he couldn't even get through the gate of the rich man. In death, he went into intimate fellowship with the one that the Jews would have considered to be the greatest man that ever lived. He was a wealthy man. He was a prominent man. He was a father of many nations. And he was going the man through whom all of the world would ultimately be blessed. And there's old Lazarus right there with him. Okay? You see? And so that is what happened to Lazarus when he died. And then we're told what happened to the rich man. The rich man also died and was buried. It's kind of interesting. Now, most commentators will say something. It may be that Lazarus was just thrown in the garbage heap. That because of his poverty, uh, maybe because of the fact that he, he was neglected, maybe he didn't have family, that 
he just didn't receive a proper burial, which was an abomination to the Jews, okay? That that would have been a terrible thing. And that the wealthy man, the rich man, would have been buried with great pomp and circumstance, with great fanfare, with great weeping and gnashing of teeth and all of this, and testimonies to his greatness and his goodness and his accomplishment. It's interesting. The rich man is buried. And so, verse 23, we're told where he is. And in Hades, being in torment. Now, I know a number of you young married couples uh, that met at Joy Brittner's house a few years ago. Now, I'll expect a little tip after church today for referring to as young married couples. Uh, y'all had the benefit of uh, Pastor Josh uh, teaching uh, a Randy Alcorn book on heaven. And, and uh, he, he had some different views uh, to actually kind of the, the abode of the dead before the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, I haven't made that much of a study of it. Uh, here's the point in this story, okay? The poor man went to the place for all who believe, namely heaven, and the rich man went to hell, a place of eternal torment, okay? That, that we, we're not going to get into all the debates, the holding place, the waiting room, the, you know, this and that, and the up and the down, and the inside out, and all that stuff, okay? It, suffice it to stay for simplicity's sake, that's what's going on here. So he goes to hell and he's immediately in torment and the Bible says a great deal about hell I, I, I've mentioned a number of times uh, my mother-in-law for many many years Tim why will preachers not preach on hell I say well I do when it comes up in the text I do and, and she's one of those, in one of those big fancy highfalutin Baptist churches down the road and they went through three or four pastors, and evidently none of them preach on hell. I don't know. I don't know why. But let me tell you something, folks. Hell is biblical. It is real. It is the final destination for anyone and everyone who lives in persistent unbelief. They die unbelieving in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is final there, there is no escape from hell. And whatever it is, whether it's fire and darkness or something beyond that, it is an awful place. And the worst thing about it is you won't be with Jesus Christ. Okay? The, the worst punishment that could be inflicted upon us, as bad as fire and all of these things are, and the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, the greatest tragedy is that you will not be with Jesus Christ and be able to enjoy and to revel. I mean to, to have an unceasing sense of rejoicing in the infinite greatness and glory of our Savior who died for our salvation. And so we, that, that, that unbeliever will be apart from that. And so again, the poor man in the great reversal is in heaven enjoying the privileges of heaven. And the rich man is sent to hell and he is tormented. And we're told that he lifts up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and he saw Lazarus. Now again, I don't know if that's, again, just kind of figurative or if in this temporary estate, 
that there's a possibility of seeing between uh, the two destinations. I, I'm not going to get into that argument. That's not my, my, my point here. But for the point of the story, he had an aha moment. That he realized that in this life he had all privilege, and yet now he had no privilege. And in this life, Lazarus had no privilege, and in the life that they were then experiencing, he had all privilege. That he was blessed beyond all measure. And so he, he understood that, and he begins to cry out for mercy. And I call this the, the desperation, because he's going to essentially make two requests. They're picking up in uh, verse uh, 24. He, he calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. The man who never demonstrated a shred of mercy now calls out, cries out, cries out in anguish that he be a recipient of that which he refused to demonstrate in this life. And one of the great stories, uh, 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 prophecies regarding uh, the judgment Jesus speaks to the righteous and unrighteous and speaks of those who clothed the naked and fed the poor and visited those in prison and uses that to define the realities of what salvation is and what salvation is, is not. And again, never make the mistake that salvation is of our performance, is of our works. It is all of grace from beginning to end. But again, it is a grace that is effective, that is powerful, that is demonstrative in the life who receive that grace. And so we see this plight of uh, the rich man, and he's going to make these requests, make this appeal there in verse 24. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. In fact, since I am still of the privileged of society, send that, that poor man who certainly would owe me, send Lazarus, he's still a pompous person. So, send Lazarus to me because I'm in anguish. It's not the state that I'm accustomed to. Lazarus lived in anguish. I lived in pleasure. So, send him to me so that he may quench my thirst. Just, just, to, just to dip his finger in, in water and touch my tongue. Because again, I'm in anguish because of the flame, because of the fire. Now, if hell is not the presence of an eternal fire, then it is something far worse. I would say to the ancient mind, the most devastating thing that could come would be a, a, a fire that was out of control. They had no way to stop it. And so... If it's not literal fire, then it's something far worse. And here's the thing, my understanding, if, if you are severely burned in this life, there's a point to where it burns your nerve endings and the pain ceases at least for a moment. The fire of hell, your nerve endings will never be destroyed to the point that you do not have the deep sense of the pain and the sorrow, and the anguish, and the suffering that is the reality of hell. 
you will be in conscious torment for all of eternity. And so, I'm in anguish in this flame. And Abraham responds to the request. Child, remember. Again, I have to believe that a part of hell will be remember. Remember that Sunday after Sunday. Remember that person after person. Remember that you heard the gospel time after time and day after day. You heard plea upon plea upon plea and you chose to harden your heart and to live in rejection. You chose the pleasures of this world and rejected the hope of the next. And so, you remember as a part of your torment that in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things but in the great reversal now he is comforted here and you're in anguish sometimes I get irritated with people stating the obvious it kind of irks me but we can't quibble with the word of God and he states the obvious Lazarus is living in eternal pleasure and you're living in eternal misery just in case you didn't notice and I'm sure not so much as a reminder to the rich man but as instruction and information for all who will ever read or hear of this passage and so Lazarus is comforted. You're in anguish. Verse 26. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. A gulf. A canyon. A, a, a fence. That no longer has a gate. A gate that at your house you could have opened to demonstrate mercy to Lazarus. But there's now no more hope of mercy. There is a, a wall. There is something fixed. There is something that ultimately and finally distances and distinguishes those who are in Hades from those who are at the bosom of Abraham. And so it is a, a fixed reality. There are no second chances. I don't know that anybody's ever tried to take this passage to prove purgatory, but purgatory is a damnable lie from the pit of hell. This is not about purgatory. This is about ultimate and final eternal destinies. Okay? So... Your situation and your destination is fixed and it is settled. You can't come here. We can't go there. No one is going back and forth. No one is crossing the boundaries. Just as separated as you are in life from this man Lazarus, you are now separated from blessing and mercy and comfort and peace and hope now. And it's forever fixed. So he makes a second request upon hearing that. As I think about these things and have over the years, does the person in hell reflect upon those that he cared about in this life and live in anguish that they may soon join him? Or because they are now Un, in an unrestrained way despicable 
desire that everybody they know join them in their misery. I don't know. But at least in this case, this man would desire that those he remembered and those he loved, namely his brothers, that someone would go to their house, that, that namely send Lazarus. Now, again, this pompous person says, first of all, send that boy to me to tip, dip, dip his finger. Well, if you're not going to do this, then send him to my house. I mean, he's still a pompous jerk, even in hell. So, send him to my father's house. Why? Five brothers. I want them to be warned because I don't want them here. Okay? And to that, Abraham offers a second reply here in verse 29. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have the Word of God. They have the sufficient revelation of what God will do to save those who believe. Whether from the Old Covenant or whether the New Covenant, the completed uh, testimony we have of the work of Jesus Christ, that is sufficient to save. It is the only means by which men may be saved. There's no amount of supernatural stuff. There's no amount of hocus-pocus. There's no amount of sideshow. There's no amount of miracles that will ever convince a person. Those things do not have the power to regenerate a lost heart. They do not have the, the ability to give sight to those that are blind. Yesterday in, in uh, the funeral, I, I, I used the story of, of Lazarus. Remember this, Lazarus walks out of the grave immediately, probably to the same group, says, we've got to kill this Jesus and Lazarus too, because that's a problem. We don't have an answer for that. It wasn't enough to convince and convert only the Word of God. In, in, in the church today, everybody's clamoring for the bigger show. More, more stuff, more smoke and mirrors, more pretty faces. None of that is enough to converse. It is the Word of God. And that's why we strive to be accurate and clear and as simple as a text will allow us to be. And so... Abraham says, they've got the Word of God. Let them hear that. He objects. Why? Because he's still a pompous jerk. Here's Father Abraham, a wise man in heaven who presumably knows far better than this guy. He says, no, 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 you're wrong. <laughs> I mean, that's the unbelieving world. You tell them this is what the Word of God... No, no, that's not right. No, because of their unbelieving hearts. And again, Abraham corrects him, ultimately and finally. Verse 31, he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that someone should rise from the dead. Of course, that has two fulfillments. I've already mentioned Lazarus. As I've told you many, many times, I believe it's as much a slam dunk as any event in the course of history can be in terms of its provability, that is, Jesus Christ died on a cross, and three days later, He walked out of a tomb. And I'm telling you, that is true, and because it's true, you better pay attention to what that man said. Yes, that is true, and that is the standard by which all men will be judged. Well, let's talk very quickly, implications, applications. 
It's appointed unto man once to die and then to judgment. The, the accounts in this life, when you die, they're closed. What you have done in regards to the gospel of Jesus Christ will be ultimate, final, it will be determinative. It will be that which determines where you spend eternity. And that is why it's so important that I, that I challenge you on a consistent basis. You examine yourself. And you examine yourself daily. You take the Word of God and see if you are of this faith through which we are saved, through which we have received grace, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and have the hope of eternal life. There are no second chances. No sideshow, no manipulation, no pretty people, no famous people telling you about how they won this or built that or bought this or that. None of that stuff will ever be enough to take a heart of stone and make from it a heart of flesh. To turn that heart of stone. To give eyes to the blind. To, to give the ears to hear the truth of the gospel. There's an urgency to that. I hope there's a clarity to that. I hope there's a simplicity to that. That what we do in proclamation of the truth is the sole means that God has designed by which the gospel, by which salvation may be uh, communicated. And here's, I, I think, one of the great upshots. I think the rich man was shocked to wake up in hell. I think he thought of himself as a good person. I think, in fact, he probably thought of himself as a merciful person, a charitable person. And again, Jesus said that many on that day shall say to him, Lord, Lord, fill in the blank. I did this and I did that. And so he says, do not presume upon my grace. Do not, do not just assume because this is what I did in the past. This is what I used to do. This, this is what brother so-and-so told me to do. And I did it. But you strive to enter by the one who is the narrow gate. It is the broad way that will lead to destruction. It is the easy way. It is the way that seems right unto men. But the gospel always has been and always will be the narrow way that passes through the person, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who hung on the cross and so calls to us, please, would you enter in through me? Would you enter into that rest? Would you never, ever enter into that place of anguish and torment, that place the Bible identifies and defines as a place known as hell. Two destinies. Two destinies. Every person ever born will be in one or the other. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your truth. It is pointed it is clear. It is weighty. I pray 
that in no shape, form, or fashion I've stooped to any type of emotional manipulation because, Lord, I confess, I do not believe that is sufficient to bring about the conversion of any single individual. But, Lord, you have included this in your word for a reason, for a purpose, that we would know. And that we, feeling the weight of your law, that our right guilt before your holiness, that we would flee to a gospel that is true and powerful to save and accomplished in your Son, Jesus Christ. May we cling ever so diligently to that cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.